we're looking for how can we how can we grow 10 20% a year efficiently but using things that have really high floors while also having high ceilings i think getting rich quick coolest thing in the world trust me i would do it if i had a way to do it like right. but for us it's just all been about that you know those base hits that consistent stuff of how can we drive incrementality day over day, month over month, year over year, and it really does compound, you know? What is up, Modern Commerce listeners? I wanna show you an amazing app we've been using called Triple Whale. You can check it out, try triplewhale.com. It has all of the business health metrics and growth metrics you could possibly need all in one place, right? So everybody can get on the same page. This has revolutionized our ability to help grow brands and collaborate with brands. Everyone can get on the same page on the most important metrics. So if you're a media buyer, you could come into this and you can just use this little pin icon right here. And you can pin to the top the most important stuff to you. So if I'm a media buyer, I might have ROAS, I might, might have ad spend, I might have new customer ROAS, right? But if I'm an owner, maybe those things aren't as important to me. Maybe I just want, you know, net profit, show me the net profit, show me the sales, right? Show me the number of orders. Um, so everyone on the team can get in line, get, you know, on the same page of what the most important growth metrics are, because it's different for every brand. Um, so grab Triple Whale at trytriplewhale.com. Use it. I promise you it will make your growth path far more clear. And uh, enjoy this episode of Modern Commerce. Hey, Modern Commerce. Welcome back. You're here as always with Casey and John, my partner in crime. And today we've got another awesome interview with you. We're continuing the How to Build a Brand series. Uh, John, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce our guest for us today. Yeah, man. Today I am excited. We have Lewis Fawcett, managing partner of Patrick Adair Designs, a super cool jewelry company. Um, and Lewis, yeah, like, I, you know, I won't over intro you. I'll let, I'll let you take it away. Give us your background and, uh, in the background of the brand really quick. So, so everybody can kind of get up to speed on, on what you can teach them here. Yeah. So we'll just run through the quick version. So, um, I'm Lewis managing partner. Basically it's just a fancy legal term for CEO. Um, I've been basically like leading the company operations and marketing since 2017, I believe I'd have to pull out a calendar to make sure that's the right year, but 2016, 17, 18, whenever I dropped out of college and we went full-time on the company, um, we got our start um, when my co-founder, Patrick, he was in high school and he just really liked to make stuff. And he realized that like making things one-off and selling them through other platforms wasn't quite sustainable. And so he decided he wanted to do a Kickstarter. Um, he launched this Kickstarter, it's called the Razor Ring. He made a really thin carbon fiber ring and it did it only i mean it did four five thousand dollars i can't remember the exact number where but for a 17 year old it was great um and that just gave them a little bit of a following in that maker jewelry design space on instagram and um youtube through the methods he was using to promote his kickstarter and so we went off to we grew up in a small town went off to college together um he did not have the best college experience he was kind of living that frat boy lifestyle of like party till 4 a.m sleep two hours, drink a Red Bull, take a nap in his mechanical engineering lecture, go home, do it all again. So he was getting to the end of the year and he realized like he wasn't going to get, be able to get into an engineering program. Um, product design major at the U, I think the, at the time, the median income was 43,000. 
And so because he had that little following of like product design already from his Kickstarter, he had started in, um, started auctioning commissions for jewelry. So he'd, you know, say, hey, um, I'm going to go home this weekend. I'll make a ring. Started at 20. I only have time to make one. Start the bid at 25. And, you know, it would go up and sometimes he'd make a couple hundred bucks on a Saturday and it would be, they'd want a custom design. It'd be super simple. So he'd make like a hundred bucks an hour. Other times, you know, it wouldn't get that many bids and then they'd want something crazy complex and he'd make like, 60 bucks to work for 24 hours, you know, so kind of all over the place, but it just kept building and snowballing organically. And along the way, he decided to document every design on YouTube. And that's where we kind of really started to pick up. And so that brings us to about that 2017 point, which is when he knew he needed a lot of help. He was, you know, he wasn't doing that well, but he was 80, 90 K a year in revenue. Um, no idea what the profit was, but he was like, yo, I need some people to come and help. He brought me in. I started by editing all the YouTube videos, helping produce them, designing the website. And then it just, my experience snowballed of like, hey, we need to hire someone to make rings. Like at, at times I was even making rings, but he's like, hey, well, you know, we need to hire someone, but how do we assign orders for like a just-in-time manufacturing process? And, you know, I just kind of made it up as I went and read a lot of books and studied what I could. And we're here today and we, you know, make thousands of handmade rings in Salt Lake every month. Um, sell thousands of handmade rings across the world every month and we're just kind of living the like young entrepreneur dream i guess you could say yeah just having doing good work and having a good time so uh it's funny so you you he brought you in for your uh you would think that it's like oh you know you must have had some like vast expertise in this but that's not the case correct like you actually were going to be basically either like a doctor or a scientist. Yeah. So we talked about this a little bit. So I was, I really like academically gifted, super blessed. I don't know if it was like nature, nurture, but I'll credit my parents. They taught me a lot and really taught me how to study, read to me every night, you know, all those kinds of things. And I ended up being really good at school. And so I was studying physics with an emphasis and it's called biochemical physics at the U, which is really just a fancy way to say you're going to take all your physics classes, but you're pre-med. So you also have to take a lot of biology and chemistry. Um, and through just kind of excelling there, I was doing research at the Utah Center for Advanced Imaging Research on um, ultrasound imaging. And I was doing really well. I was working under a PhD. I was getting paid, which is like super uncommon for an undergrad researcher. Um, but I just getting paid, could work up to 40 hours a week. Um, my PhD was really notable in the field. And so he had kind of told me that like, he would help me get into any PhD program I wanted, but I was leaning more towards medical school. But Patrick and I, we grew up, we like went to middle school together. We might've went to elementary school together at one point, I don't remember. Um, but in high school, we started to become friends because we had taken a lot of like digital media classes together. So we had these classes that like, show up, they teach you how to like use Adobe Premiere, Adobe Photoshop, you know, just some things like that. Um, and I lived really far away from our high school. So I really loved stuff like that. Cause like, I live somewhere where like there, the things you could do is like me and my friends in my small town, like it'd be like a Friday night and we'd be like, okay, well let's get some guns and just go walk around in the mountains and shoot stuff, you know? And so like this stuff you could do on the computer was cool, but like, I didn't even play that many video games growing up. Cause like we didn't have good internet. So like 
I could only play like single player video games and stuff. And I, if I wanted to download a game, it would take, you know, it, literally three or four days to download a game. So like being like, oh, I can like edit a video that I just like film on an iPhone or whatever. Like it was just kind of cool. And I got really into like, into it. And Patrick had seen that. And so his thought process was, um, I paraphrase it. He's like said this, I think he said this on like the Shopify Masters process podcast. So I'm not just putting words in his mouth, but he's just like, he was smart. And so I knew he'd be able to figure stuff out that we didn't know. And I knew he knew how to use Photoshop and Premiere and HTML. So I figured he could, he could cover the basics and we'd figure everything else out along the way. And it was a really natural snowball. So like when I came in, like we say co-founder, but like, obviously the company was technically started years before. Um, and when I came in, it wasn't like, Hey, I need you to come, you know, be like my technical co-founder, be my marketing co-founder, whatever. It's just like, Hey, I'm going to pay you $10 an hour to do stuff. And then um, it all culminated in just like a natural snowball progression. And what happened is I was saving up money so I didn't have to take out student loans. And at the end of the summer, I was like, I'm going back to school. Okay. Like hags, have a nice time. <laughs> I'll see you later. And I was sitting in a biology lecture. And this is like one of those things that like is like the pivotal moment in my life that I always look back on that like sounds fake when you tell the story. So I was sitting there and I was like, I wonder what it's like to drop out of school. And so I had Googled like how to drop out of college. And I'm sitting in a lecture. I'm in the third row in the middle. And Patrick calls me. My phone rings in lecture. And I don't know, like this, I'm like the most timid, like basic person as like a student and everything. Like, like even though I'm like good at school, like I won't raise my hand because I'm scared that I'm wrong kind of a thing. But for whatever reason that day, I was just I had that like big dick energy or whatever. I answered my phone in the lecture and Patrick's like, yo, I'll give you this much equity and this much money to come back tomorrow. And I stood up and walked off campus. I lived about 10 minutes away from campus and did not go back until like two years later, you know, when I was like going to watch like sporting events and stuff. Uh So it was, it was really natural and kind of just lucky. Like on it. I mean, there was a lot of luck involved, right? Like he could have put faith in me and I could have sucked. But I just happened that like we were able to figure out a really good system and I ended up being at least halfway decent at this whole like being an entrepreneur, like marketer, operator, whatever you want to say, you know? Well, you're yeah. alert, right? Go ahead, Casey. I was going to say, first of all, as a fellow college dropout, it's it's ridiculous to hear somebody say like, how do you, like it was, it was actually extremely easy to do, really. Like, well, because so my thing, yeah, was, I mean, the way I did it, super easy. You know, you just leave, but I was like, well, I'm sure you got to like fill out a form in case you want to come back. So like, you know, like, do I drop all my classes? Like, what do I do? But yeah, um, I, you can that's just- how, that's how people who are good at school drop out of college. Casey's college journey was much more like Patrick's. Uh, and it's pretty easy for them to drop out of college because they're not like, Casey wasn't like, oh, I might want to come back someday. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, how do I make sure that when I decide I need to go get a degree, like I still get my half ride scholarship, you know, like that's, that's what I was worried about. But uh, it, yeah. yeah, turns out it's really easy. You just leave. You know? <laughs> I do have a real question though. I didn't just want to say that. Okay. So John and I have a similar kind of path in our history. Like we were friends in middle school. Um, you know, John kind of started his own agency, uh, not too far into it. You know, he, I think, uh, I won't speak for him, but I think just the trust of knowing each other, kind of knowing each other's habits, kind of already had a shorthand together. I think those are some of the reasons why we, uh, or why John kind of took a chance on me being, you know, no experience in marketing as well. Uh, from your point of view, Lewis, I'm, I'm, I'm cur- curious, uh, what do you think are some of the unique advantages and 
maybe obstacles in working with somebody who you have like a long personal friendship with? Um, yeah, I think the advantages come down to like, and I guess this could depend on who the person is, but like, right, like Patrick's like, I don't even think of him as like a friend anymore. I literally think of him like a brother and that isn't necessarily like a compliment. That's like, you know, there are days where like, I don't like, I don't like him, but I do love him. If that makes sense. Like yeah. I love him. As, like I care about him, but I do hate him just a little bit, you know, cause like we'll be arguing about something. And so like, that's the one thing that's helped us is like, cause we were pretty close. So in college, like before we dropped out, we had basically, we were the only two kids from our school and like friend group or whatever that got into the honors college at the U. Um, there were people like older than us, younger than us. And I think one or two kids that like, we never really talked to in high school, but we were the only two people who like, so before high school, we were, we knew each other well, but not that well. But then like in college, it was like, that's the only person from my hometown at this university that I don't hate kind of a thing. Um, and so we got really close. Like we lived in dorms that were across the hall from each other. So it's just like really natural thing. Um, and so the advantages coming down for like, you know, now years later is like, I know that like, he feels that same way about me. Like he probably, there's probably days where he's like, I hate this mother effort, but you know, he cares about me. And like, he always has my back in like a, you know, like we could be like, like I would have a hundred percent confidence that like if a private equity company came to us tomorrow that like he would negotiate my side better than he'd negotiate his. But the hard side is like back to those disagreements where like you're super close to someone and sometimes you have really hard differing opinions and it can be contentious and you have to figure that out of like, you know, we're debating about like, should we fire this person? And one of us has a really strong yes and one of us has a really strong no. And like, that's a super contentious situation. And like, when you're so close, I'm like, I lived with Patrick for like 18 months or something at one point, you know, like while we were working on the company, like you have to like go see this person all the time. Like they're always in your life. And you're like, I'm really mad at you for this thing you did at work. And I don't think it was ever like that big of a deal, but just like the, so like, I was never like really mad. But I was like, oh, you did this thing at work and it was super annoying, but now I want to hang out with you because you're a really good friend, but I'm super annoyed at you because you did this thing at work, you know? Yeah, that make, that makes total sense. I mean, I think this is actually fairly common for for people we've met. I mean, I, I know I've asked this question a couple times before. So a lot of people tend to like grab from their their past and kind of like people, you said, like just knowing somebody it means something. People yeah. partner with spouses as well, right? It's like you got to figure that out. It's not it's not super easy. So yeah, no, I love that. So okay, one thing I I want to ask you. So you were you were a researcher. You may be a published researcher. You're not. In, um, yeah, we had that conversation. Yeah. Uh, but you were, you were a scientist, right? Like you had a science yeah. background. I, the, the thing that I always say in marketing, like one of my things that I tell like people I'm training, I'm like, be a scientist, right? Like you need to understand what you're testing for, what variables you're controlling, what variables you cannot control and the effects they may or may not have, right? Like these are things like you actually have to like think about the scientific method when you're running paid media, when you're running any kind of marketing, split tests on your website, whatever. Um, I don't know, would you say, what, what's your take? Like, are you like that kind of marketer or are you that, that kind of operator where you're kind of like, yeah, I took like a really scientific approach to everything. And and sometimes I like don't, because I would say actually one of my downsides is sometimes I don't gut optimize enough, right? Like I don't do enough of that. Like, yeah, I kind of just know this is going to be better. This is, I'm going to do this, right? Like I'm kind of like, no, no, it needs to be tested. Uh, and there needs to be some kind of control variable and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, tip, I'm, I'm interested in your take on this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the thing is, is that 
I operate kind of that data first approach, right? Like I want to see all the data. The thing that like that scientific background helps with a lot is like understanding how things work. Cause like, right. You meet and like, I don't know, you're in an agency world. You probably talk to way more media buyers than I do, but I talk to a lot of like early stage media buyers who like, they don't quite understand like how the actual box works. They, you know, they're like, I pick targeting, I throw in some creative, it works. Whereas like, because I have that like data-driven background, like to me, it's super interesting to learn like, okay, like how, how does machine learning, oh, it's, it's trying to optimize for one output based on the inputs it gets. And like, oh, we're prioritizing in the event aggregator, the priority of the event. So like, if there's no purchases, it's gonna optimize off this. If there's none of this, you know, that kind of things. Like I get really deep into that. And that's where the science background helps. We talked about this a little in like our briefing or whatever you want to call it. Like we've talked about this historically, um, the three of us have, but we have a really hard time with attribution because a lot of our customers purchase really far outside of tracking windows. Like, so they're, you're never going to find the actual first touch. So that does lead us to a lot of like gut driven decisions, but we always back it up with data. So like, you know, like if, if I say, hey, I think this ad's gonna be better because like we've seen really positive risks like Instagram comments or YouTube comments or the click-through rate or watch time of this section of the video on YouTube was insane, any of that. Yeah. But then we have data that counteracts that like in wherever it is, whether it's performance marketing, content marketing, whatever, I'm super open to like changing that because I, I get that idea of like, you have a hypothesis and you test it. And if if your hypothesis is wrong, that doesn't say anything about you. like. Right. And in fact, it's better probably to be wrong more often than not, because that's what actually tells you the learnings, because you're trying to test a yes or no. And that's where, and like something you said about like controls and stuff, that's something else I'm also really big on is like, you know, like I want it to be a real test. So like if someone, you know, is like, well, this product's not selling well, let's cut the price, let's change the title and let's change the PDP hero image. I'm going to be like, sometimes I'll say yes, because I'm okay with gut optimizing. Like I know I'm like, okay, this sucks. Let's do, let's do that to try to take it from, you know, five sales a week to 20 and then start, start like optimizing it again. Like basically throw out the baseline. Cause we think the baseline's so bad, but 90% of the time I'm going to say, no, you got to pick one thing. We can do one of those. Like, and for us, it's usually the image. Cause jewelry is like really visual. Like yeah. all of our like surveys and stuff tell us our number one customer care is what does it look like? And so like, we have all these other things, you know, like that we talk about, make us feel like it's made in America, it's handcrafted, this meteorite comes from the Arctic Circle, we dig it up with backhoes and slice it in New York before it ships to us, all this stuff. But like, at the end of the day, what they really care about is like, does it look cool? Yes or no? You know, so. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, the story is great, right? And that's, I think that's like, you just hit on something that I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm going to digress into just like some tactical marketing here for a second yeah. oh, that's great. Um, because you just hit on something and you're like, look, it's jewelry. It's visual. The number one care is like, does it look cool? We as marketers, especially I'm going to say qualitative marketers, uh, creative driven folk, you know, or yeah. like, you know, people direct response, copywriter type people. Like, I'm not saying like, you know, just brand woo, like, like Casey, right. Casey is a creative strategist specifically focused on conversion creatives. Right. Um, we do, we get really caught up sometimes in like the idea of like storytelling, right? And I, I look, I'm, I love storytelling as much as the next guy and I think it works, but like at the end of the day, if it's a ring, like, yeah, the story is cool. And you do want like people to like, oh, when someone asks me about it, I have this cool story. Like, that's great. 
but like they won't even like you're not even gonna the co the price of entry is how does it look right so if it's a ring you don't have to explain to people people know what a ring is if it's a shirt people know what a shirt is like there's certain products that are just known products and in jewelry necklaces bracelets rings people know what they are you don't have to explain what those are to them so the the price of entry the price to even tell your story is does it look cool right like if it doesn't yeah. look cool you don't even get to tell your story so exactly and it's like to just like dive into that a little bit like on the tactical side so like one thing that I notice a lot is like, I'll go talk to a lot of other like direct response marketers. And like, I love like direct response marketing. Like I copywriting, probably my favorite marketing thing ever. I do a lot of copywriting, like we'll send plain text emails sometimes that, and do real well for rings, you know, but like the number one, like thing I come back to is like, I'll go to like these events and people will be talking about like, oh, you need this awesome video creative. You need it all, you know, it needs to be structured this way. And like, it works, we do it, it helps, but a lot of our best creating performances in our vertical, not saying this goes across everything is, you know, we can make a GIF or a static, like a static being just static picture, image. Yeah. that static image that looks good and put all of the direct response brand stuff in the, like in the text above, if it's on Facebook or below on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And we can see that do really well because like we know that. And like, it's just going back to some of those basics of like, you know, cause I'll see people who are like, oh yeah, you can't run static, static stuff. Like there's no, there's no reason to run statics. I'm like, well, here's a static that gets in America right now bidding against like Gucci, Armani, Prada, 50% or 50 cent cost per clicks. Yeah. You know, like, like and you yeah. gotta be willing to try it. And I just, I know there's stuff, like, I'm not going to call anyone out, but I know some people who like swear by that stuff. And then it's like, they make the barrier to entry so high. Whereas like, I think if you're in apparel, you're in a lot of this stuff where you don't need a lot of like education for the product to get across the finish line. Like everyone knows what a t-shirt is. Everyone knows what a ring is. Everyone knows what shoes are. Like it's probably worth testing some well-designed statics. Like I'm not just saying like snap a picture on an iPhone, throw it up. Like we have really good macro photographers. We've done stuff where we've like put copy, like, you know, spent dozens of hours like copywriting, you know, three like value props and photoshopping them in and like those like really over design statics. But that's way easier than like some of these companies who are like, hey, you know what? It's gonna, you're, you need to go drop 25 grand to make six brand product intros or brand intros or whatever to test to even have a shot. And it's like, well, like, this is not what I've seen, you know? No, I mean, I say all the time, like, look, if you're selling, uh, Poopery or Squatty Potty, or, you know, like the Harmon Brothers have a little chat books. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. You, look, you're gonna have to explain it to people. You put a static in front of people, they're gonna be like, "What the hell is that?" You know, like, why does that matter to me? Um, so yeah, you look. You need probably some demonstration there. But if you're selling a ring, everybody knows what a ring is. Yeah. And I'd say half the time with apparel, a furniture. Furniture is one that we're big at. Like, like half the time, I'm like, "Hey, just uh, put it in front of people and see if they like it." And if they don't like that one, maybe just like put another one in front of them and see if they're yeah. And like, yeah, so, you know, and any of that stuff, like, <clears throat> I guess in my mind, like your department store products, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, whether that department store is a, a Macy's or an RC Willie or a Walmart, like any of that stuff where people kind of know what it is, like you can get away with doing a lot with just statics and like, yeah. I don't know, like. I guess I don't have a, I don't have a point besides what I've already said, but like, yeah, no, I just think people discount it a lot, you know? Yeah.
Bro, I don't have a point when I talk on the show like half of the time, so don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we digress. Like, and it's it's funny. We're like, I'm saying all the Casey stuff that he's usually saying to clients, but I gotta I gotta say though, even with like beautiful imagery like you have, not afraid to send some plain text emails. I tell people all the time, don't sleep on plain text. I think our first video on this channel, like a year before we ever started the podcast, was me doing like a five minute like quick email tips, and one of them was like, hey, don't be afraid of that plain text. Yeah. No, we um. I'm big on plain text and I think I would argue that almost every brand can and should do plain text like a your deliverability improvements great um so I can't say like names I consulted for a private equity company for a little while I can tell like off camera but I got pretty strict NDA where I can't like broadcast it yeah. um but we had to rewarm an email account from basically they bought a company that had been bankrupt we had to rewarm email accounts that had been not used for i think it was like nine months four million act previously four million engaged subscribers and like <clears throat> this is the kind of company that like you would think sending a plain text like definitely under the previous management never an option like we're way too premium we're way too cool <clears throat> excuse me sorry we need way better design but we warmed with plain text like re-engaged and rewarmed ip and domain with plain text and then we we're seeing such good success that we a b test it and we're like we were able to sell like a decent amount more. I don't want to say anything. I'm not trying to get sued under an NDA, but on our brand, like we'll have plain text emails that'll do like 25K. Like, yeah, you know, just cause you optimize it. And like, we we put a good amount of work into them. Those are, those are probably the only emails I still write myself. But if we're gonna do a plain text email, like, you know, I'm not afraid to like sit in Hemingway editor and write for two hours and to write, you know, a an email that's this long on a on a desktop computer so three scrolls on a phone or two scrolls that if you optimize it right and like tweak the offer you can you can do a lot and your deliverability is just so much better like yeah yeah yep. yeah I, I appreciate all that nerdy stuff that's that's exactly my thoughts on it as well it's people it's it's unless you have like the the desire to try to understand the deliverability and stuff like you can't really explain the effect to people but anyway i didn't mean to make this whole episode about plain text emails that's such a casey thing to do no I, it's it, it, you're saying all this stuff like everything you just said i'm like you sound like casey um, <laughs> but but yeah no like i, I love it so okay I want to talk, okay, journey here, like we got, like, just kind of let's continue sort of story of Patrick Adair here and how you, how you kind of like hit some really like big inflection points of growth. So you came in and you got involved. One thing I want to emphasize about you guys is that uh, you're a little different than other e-com brands where like you actually legitimately thought you might be a media company for a minute. Like you guys have a very serious YouTube strategy, like, like a very serious, like, I don't, very serious, a weird way to put it. You guys have a big YouTube channel. Yeah. So running into that. So when we started, um, we were making, I don't remember the exact numbers I pulled up, but like we we're making a couple grand a month off of YouTube and selling like 5k in rings, but then your rings have all the costs, right? Like labor. And at the time, like when we didn't have employees, it was still us making them. So like, that's still our time, whatever. And, you know, like we would get sponsors on our YouTube channel and just like the way it would work is we are looking doing the math and we're like, well, AdSense is a couple grand. We might get a sponsor for one video for a couple grand. The rings are selling six grand. Like maybe YouTube first is the way to go. And so that's really what we did for like the first six months. We basically, which was one thing like where I came in like quote unquote clutches. Cause like Patrick, I'm, 
I think this was why Patrick reached out to me. I'm a significantly better, like, quote unquote, creative in the sense of like content videographer, whatever. Like he's, he's way better at filming, but like compared to him, I am like a premier Photoshop wizard and he's pretty good. Like that. I just, I know double what he knows. And like a good videographer knows double what I know. So I got to say, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I would never apply for a job to be an editor, but just we were doing like we had the background. And so we would film two videos a week. Um, we'd release one on Wednesday, one on Saturday, kind of the way the process would work is like Patrick would film. We'd come up with ideas. Patrick would film and he would film Monday, Tuesday, give me the footage on Tuesday night. And I would, I'd be doing like operation stuff, like tweaking the website, sending emails Monday, Tuesday, that he would give me footage. Usually get it to me about like 3 PM, like late in the afternoon. I would edit from like three to midnight or 1 AM. He'd come into a voiceover. I'd edit till like four or 5 AM. He would then do a watch through when he woke up in the morning, we'd post it that day. I'd sleep on his couch in his apartment for a few hours. His brother who was making rings at the time would come in and wake me up when he got to work so I could start working again. Cause I wouldn't get up if I went home or if I didn't do that, like there were a few days where that would happen. I'd be like, Oh, I'm going home. I'd sleep and I'd, they'd wake me up at like one. They'd be like, yo, you coming in today? I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess. Like I just slept through my alarm. I'd sleep through everything. Cause I'd be so tired. And then we do that same thing Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so like, we just go nonstop. And it wasn't like, you know, sometimes like he's, he needs to write a script for a voiceover. It's like, I might go to the mall for four hours or go get dinner or whatever. But like, we were probably working like, I don't know what the hours were, but we were working easily 80 hour weeks plus for like six, seven months straight, churning out two videos. And we're getting a lot of traction. But then what happened is the more traction we got, like we're, we're marketers, we know, like you start to get a lot more traffic. And then that traffic's also compounding because someone's, you know, 25% of our customers wait a year. The majority of them wait more than a month, you know, like yeah. they start compounding. And all of a sudden we looked at it one day and we're like, oh shit, we're selling a lot of rings now. We're a, we're a ring company like YouTube. And we have a video right now. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we had a video, we have a video now that's like 22 million views. That video made us like 20 grand in a month. But that month we made like 20 grand on AdSense from that video. Plus like another five or six from the historical stuff compounding. We sold like, 220k in rings or something i don't know the exact number i could go i'd have to pull it i didn't pull it before this but um and so we were just like oh we're a we're a e-commerce company like youtube's cool it's doing well but really we're an e-commerce company and that's where we buckled down and like we learned about email marketing we learned about media buying and hired and we were also fortunate like we were we were big enough by the time we needed to like learn about those things we could just hire experts and learn from them like and then say oh it, it doesn't make sense to pay the retainer anymore. We'll bring it in house or we need to renegotiate this fee structure and stuff like that. And so it made it really easy. Cause like, I, I'd say I'm like a B tier media buyer. If I buy myself as like a marketer, I think I'm really strong, but like I got the part of the reason I think I'm that good is cause like I got to watch professionals who are making, you know, hundred K a year to do it. Cause they're in a big agency media buy for me for like two years. And rather than just being like, Oh, that's cool. Like the doc says we made money. I'm going through the ad account with them every week and saying like, Oh, what does this mean? Like, I, like, what is this stat? Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me watch a few YouTube videos. Like you're actually learning. Yeah. That, yeah. So, okay. Uh, kind of continuing here. So like we, you, you, you're doing YouTube, you're getting a lot of your stuff organically. <laughs> 
at what point, because you were kind of like, oh, we're an e-commerce company. That's when we decided to decided to start learning about like media buying and email marketing and stuff. Just curious, like how much in annual revenue or run rate, like how, how big were you when you said, oh, I think we're an e-commerce company? We were definitely at over a million dollar a year run rate. I think we've probably only done like half a million today right. or whatever, like. Right, but your run rate. Because right. we were talking about that. I don't remember exactly when we started spending on Facebook and email and stuff. Like, I know it was after that 22 million view video we have. And so I know there were like three or four months. So I just don't know which months to pull. But yeah, we were we were consistently doing like 100 to 200K a month yeah. when we realized that. And so like, yeah. and probably consistently, I guess evergreen like 100K a month, 200K like sales months. So 1.2, 1.4 million, somewhere in that run rate. Yeah. So you guys were like, like legitimately, I don't even, I want to say big, but like, you know, with kind of thing, I think, you know, if, if you're contextualizing that as an e-commerce brand, there are plenty of people who launch as an e-commerce brand, fully intending to be an e-commerce brand from the start and never even get that big. Uh, and number two, like for e-commerce brands that have grown to there or even beyond, think about that, but like with no paid media costs, right? Like a lot of those costs that do in, eat into your margins, like, yeah, I mean, that's what, like you guys were an e-commerce company for a while before you thought, oh, hey, I think we're an e-commerce company. Yeah. Um, and the crazy thing is like, what's crazy from like a margin standpoint is like, our margin changed a lot over time. And so like, I mean, it'd be a little harder to dive into. Like it'd be really like, really like tactical accounting stuff. But like, what was crazy is like, and YouTube also isn't super consistent. And especially in our niche, we like, we were super early to it. And by the time, like, like by today, like if we wanted to be getting the same views consistently we were there, we'd have to be like really going over the top. Like we'd have to be probably spending five to 10 K on a video. And so some of our videos were like expensive, not in like labor, but the, you know, we might literally spend, um, we have one that did like a million views. It's like making a ring out of Tritium or whatever, or like we have one where I made a ring out of like meteorite and green lantern. Like the ring itself is worth like cost us a couple grand and it took probably a hundred hours to film, you know, like, yeah. so you equate that into like labor costs, that's skilled labor time. Even if you're hiring someone off the street and like, you're going to kill her deal. What's 50 times, that's five grand you know, like plus the two grand for that, plus editors. So like we still had a ton of costs. So that's the one thing that I think shocks people is like our production style didn't mean that like, we yeah. honestly, like we're probably about as profitable and I could dive in like some of that because some of that's like moving wages around and stuff. So like mm -hmm. we don't pay, um, I technically don't take a salary. I do take a management fee um, and Patrick takes a management fee, but like we're not W2'd anymore because of like holding companies, owning our company and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but yeah, like our margins, it was probably went from like 50% to 30%. So still a pretty big drop, but like we were making less than a lot of people would probably assume. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. So it's like, um, I think that the big thing there that like, you know, the takeaway is like good content marketing, legitimate content marketing that drives results. It, it's like, it's not free. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and like, just cause it's not paid media. doesn't mean it's yeah and the thing is like right it's it's definitely like way like those 22 million views on youtube like to get those and like direct response optimizing stuff like still would have been crazy expensive so but just like that was the caveat of like i kind of make it sound like oh we we're just like kids with like iphones or whatever like we were filming on like dslrs we had like rigs set up for 
our film setups, you know, and then just because we're in the jewelry space, like a lot of our material cost was like actually pretty high. So like, because right, like there's stuff we can do now, like if I'm just going to make you a ring and it's a custom ring out of custom material, I can buy a piece of metal that's this thick that we're going to make it out of. But like if I want that to look good in a video, I might need to buy a rod that's this thick and we might only sell two of those. So I just spent, you know, two grand on superconductor that we don't know if we're going to sell. Like, fortunately, most of the time we were growing and we sold through it and stuff. But yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So and I guess, sorry, one more thing. I guess one thing I'm going to take back everything I said, a lot of where I said we probably weren't as profitable is probably because of CapEx. Like, right, we needed to buy more equipment to sell more rings, like make more rings. So I take all that back. We probably were actually crazy profitable, but we were investing a lot into the business. And I'm just too dumb to realize that because it's that was five, six years ago and we weren't keeping that. I wasn't that good with a PL back then. So yeah. you weren't in accounting yet back then. Like, yeah, like I didn't know anything about it yet. So yeah. So so okay, interesting. So you start implementing paid media, you start implementing, you know, all the stuff that e-com brands implement. And uh that was around, I think you said 2017, 2018. Um yeah, that would have been 2018. Yeah. So, so, I mean, can you give us an idea of like, okay, you're, you're kind of on this million dollar run rate. And I think that, you know, that threw a lot of fuel on the fire. Yeah. Like, I mean, where did your run rate go from there? Or if you can share? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't remember by year by year, I could pull it up, but like a lot of it, we've been pretty steady with growth. So like 30 to 50% a year. Um, and then just let that compound. So like, but it definitely helped us start growing faster. And it, the biggest thing that like having like traditional, media buying and things like that helped with is consistency right because like i mean you guys you guys make youtube videos like you've probably seen it um you can put a video out one week and get five thousand views put out a video out the next week and it only gets one thousand views and like you can't count on consistent scale and so that's that's where the like so we weren't like one of those brands where like we turned on paid ads and just like proofs you know slingshot to the roof we also were trying to go profitably we pretty much you know grew 30 to 50% a year while maintaining 20 to 30% profit margins year over every year as well. So like very, so a little more slow, um, just so that people who like are going to pull out like the compound interest calculator on money chip know, like we did have some years that were a lot more than that. So right now we're just under an eight figure run rate. Yeah. So we had, I think last year we grew over a hundred, top line grew over a hundred percent profit growth was more like 80% last year. But that was, and the year before that was also similar, but then like 2018 to 2019, I think was 30, 2019 to 2020 was like 40. And then that we got that big COVID bump and took yeah. it off to the races and aren't giving any of it back. So got you. So that you actually led me right to my next point. So yes, you guys did experience the COVID bump as many brands did. Uh, so you are vertically integrated though, right? So you're yep. sourcing materials and you're, 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 uh, you're producing in-house your, yeah. so what did 2020, so 2020 was a great year for a lot of people. 2021 was like a really perfect storm of like suckiness for a lot of people because product got hard, hard to source, crates started costing, you know, crazy amounts. Uh, there's products sitting in, in uh, LA Harbor, um, you know, and I don't know if, if you had the same problems when sourcing raw materials, but uh, I do think I'm guessing that being vertically integrated helped you with that side of things. But then the other side of the perfect storm was that we had this iOS 14 hit and brands that have a heavy part of their traffic, heavy part of their sales coming from paid media, uh, were hurt by it. Right. So I, I do, yeah, I want to ask you like, 
you know, that 2020, you got a strong bump there. How was 2021 for you? Like, was it hard? Like, I remember I, I've had conversations early 2022 and people are like, look, I'm going to be just be honest here. It's been a tough year, right? Like 2021, it's been a tough year. Uh, curious how it was for you guys. Yeah. So 2021, I guess we'll break it into like the two halves, even going back to COVID, like operations, marketing, acquisition kind of a thing. So operationally, um, things that have hurt, well, we'll, we'll go all the way back to COVID. COVID hits because we're vertically integrated and we, I don't think we've mentioned here, all of our stuff is manufactured just in time, but not even just in time, it's made to order. So like mm -hmm. just in time's cooler than what we do because you order our stuff, we make it after you order it and we ship it out in a few weeks. Like it takes, you know, not uncommon for it to take 30 days, 60 days to get your custom handmade ring. Um, so COVID hits um, super proactive. I, I don't know, like God, divine intervention, because I'm Aquarius, whatever you believe in. I don't know. I was really on top of like the news cycle. And so COVID hits, we scale everything debt back to bare minimum and basically say, look, you know, say our MERS a three, what would it look like if we try to get our MER to a five? Yeah. You know, because that way, if we take that haircut, we take that haircut, but we survive. Yeah. That for about like March 20th through mid-May even, we're saying like, okay, it's not as bad as we thought. People are still buying. Stim stimulus seems like it's helping. Let's start getting back to where we were. Um, and to be frank, like cutting to like from three to a five is basically just like, what if we weren't growing? You know, what if instead of trying to grow year over year, we were okay with losing 5% a year and but maintaining a healthy like cash free cash flow. Um, right. And so like, it wasn't like we took a huge haircut or anything. It was just like, cut a lot of spend, things like that, which probably would have hurt us down the line if we'd done it a lot. Memorial Day rolls around. We have a really strong Memorial Day weekend. And so what we, so, and from there, I go, okay, you know what? We're going to start stacking it back up. Free cash flow doesn't seem to be an issue. Um, scale pretty well, pretty consistently through that year. I think that was... I think that year we grew 80% or something. It wasn't exactly 100%, but I think I'd have to pull up my Excel charts, but I think it was like 80-ish 80, 80 percent, you know, like 1.8 to 3 point something. Right. Um, I think is what my, I think is what I remember. Um, 2021 comes around, going great. Our March 2021, incredible. Um, on an acquisition side, operation side, logistically, everything. Over, throughout the rest of the year, iOS 14 hurt us really bad. You've kind of, I mentioned it a little here throughout the process, but our average customer times kind of from surveying. So like, this isn't even perfect, right? Cause like we get some cohorts respond more active than others, all kinds of things, basically cut it in fourths. 25% will buy in the first week, 25% in the first 30 days, 25% in the first year and 25% after the first year or no first three months, first year, 25% within the first year. And we, don't have any data on how many people are waiting one year or more. Like, so for all I know, you know, it could actually be 30% by after year two. And we just didn't ask the right questions kind of a thing. Like okay. real, like I said, really good in school. Like I understand statistics very well. I can tell you like our surveying methods, not great. Like I would not bet money <laughs> on random samples if you kind of right. a thing. Yeah. So that's just kind of how we understand it though, based on who we've been able to get respond, how we were able to get in touch with them. So 
iOS 14 kicked us in the throat where like we were scaling, you know, evergreen month over month, we were able to scale like five figure or double digit percentage points, you know, 10, 20% month over month while maintaining like 2.8 to three plus ROAS ranges. Um, then iOS 14 happens. That takes a long time to really hit, but like we feel it. Um, we own a couple smaller brands and we could use them as kind of litmus tests because they don't have those huge organic channels. Right. And so we could, we felt it right away. I knew, we knew it was going to be bad. So we just kind of said, that, but like, it is what it is, right? Like I can't change Facebook. I can't change Apple. So I'm going to control what I can change. And I'm going to just make sure we're operating to be the best we can be. Um, then you get all the logistics stuff. This is where we're like this again, I'm Aquarius cause my, I'm an ox. I don't know what you believe in, but like, yeah, super lucky just the way we're made. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to us as much. Cause like, so a lot of our raw materials, like obviously people are familiar with how big a ring is like, yeah, does our average order value four to 500 bucks, you know, like it does not, right. we're selling, a, we're selling a, de a good amount, like relatively, but we're selling a small amount of small things. So like, yeah. we don't need crazy amounts of material. A lot of our materials that we source as true raw material, like it's coming in some kind of bulk, you know, we might be buying like this much for two or three months to last us, maybe six months. Yeah. So we felt the cost increase, but we didn't have to deal with delays. And because we're um, made to order, most of our cost is in our labor, right? Cause like, yeah, that's just how it works. Most of it's labor cost. So product costs way more and yeah, our shipping went up, but we didn't even have to deal with the delays cause we ship everything air freight. So like yeah. we don't, we're not waiting. I mean, there's a few things like our, our shipping boxes ship, don't ship air freight. Cause you know, like that would be a lot of space, but like, you know, buying like metal discs that we're going to transform into rings, things like that. You know, we're buying boxes this big every two weeks or whatever. They just ship them to us through DHL air freight. It shows up. Yeah. Now our shipping is $300 instead of a hundred dollars, but our margins are big enough that it, it definitely hits. The one that's been worse for us, I feel is inflation coming into the labor market. Um, you know, it's yeah. like, because we've always paid a high wage, like, and this isn't trying to like, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's some people where we don't pay like top of market or whatever, but a lot of what we're hiring is we're hiring basically like blue collar workers who like their alternative is to go work in like a machine plant or something like a machine shop. But most of them don't have the training to go work in a CNC machine shop and make, you know, 25 to $35 an hour. Yeah. Like those would be our ideal employees, but we don't need someone to have that much training because a lot of our stuff isn't made by like what you would think of as a traditional jeweler. It's more of made by a machinist. Um, so what happens is we're hiring people who that's what they want to do. But like, am I going to go to Ameritech or one of these other trade schools or what am I going to do? So we're pulling them and saying, well, hey, you could be working construction, but instead we'll give you like kind of a skill. It's not necessarily that much of a skill, but we'll pay really well because we can afford to so that you love this job because you know your alternative is 20 bucks an hour working construction will pay you a little more than that and you're inside you can you know like have some of these perks um but we just have found over time that like our wage costs are 
going up fairly, like hiring like a new customer support person, 30 or 40% increase, which again, isn't the biggest deal to our bottom line, but definitely probably where we've been hit the hardest. No, yeah. And so, so I'll echo this because as someone who are, we operate, a, our product that we sell is, I don't know, human resource, you might say, right? Like yeah. we sell human experience and skill and, and work, right? Man hours. Yeah, the, the inflation of labor costs has been significant and maybe most e-commerce brands probably haven't have felt it as much as a brand that is like you made to order uh, vertically integrated or a service based brand. So yeah, now those other e-commerce brands that haven't felt that they've definitely felt other costs increase. So I'm, I'm not saying, you know, they've got it easy or anything like that, but, but yeah, that that's been real for sure. Um, yeah, just a difference. Cause right. Like right. I probably like, I bet I pay more in payroll than a I mean, obviously there's some of these guys like who have like, they do their own shipping, but they're back from China. But like, I bet the majority of companies are size to 50% bigger, pay less in payroll than I do right. because they don't have to deal with that, but they pay a lot more like to their manufacturing partners. And so it's just like, it's just, that's where we were hit logistically the worst so far. Um, but like, I don't, you know, like we can't, com it's, you're comparing apples to oranges quite literally. So like, I don't know yeah. if we're better off or worse off than the people who had to deal with like forecasting issues. Cause right. Like I definitely would have over forecasted based on my March, my Memorial day was better. My Memorial day in 2021 was better than black Friday on a day by day yeah. comparison, obviously like not on an event by event comparison, but my Memorial day itself, we sold more than we did on black Friday. Right. And it, that's exactly what happened to everyone. They, all over forecasted and we had this scare from essentially people not being able to get product products sitting on the water yeah and then so it's like okay we don't know if we're gonna be able to get product plus look how banging we were in may 2020 so we're doing demand planning and we're looking at our growth rate year over year and it's just yeah growth wasn't there in may 2020 yeah you expect black friday to also be up 30 40 50 60 100 percent year over year and all of a sudden it's flat whatever like our, I don't think ours was flat. I'd have to go I'd have to pull out of it. But you know what I mean. Like worst months were May, June, July, May, May through September, May through October. I mean, iOS, Facebook was behind the eight ball and iOS. Like you know, yeah. what I mean? they were not ready, and it it hurt. Like it was a kick in the throat, you know. And it, so the fact that you said it, like I'm glad, right? Like because a lot of people felt that. So um, cool. Now let me ask you this on your paid media, but on your paid media side. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've kind of come out the other side of that, like really bad kick that we kind of got from iOS? Because we were talking off camera, right? And you said like, look, our, our ROAS, our CPAs went from, you know, like what you said, like 50 or hundred to like 700, right? And so- Yeah, so I pulled those numbers for this. So our in-platform CPAs, this is March to September. Um, the in-platform, I didn't compare Evergreen to Evergreen because I didn't, I wasn't that smart, but I did when I did my total. They went from 350 in Facebook to 700. Yeah. 30% um, rise in our actual CPA once you like do all the math out in those same periods of time, Evergreen. So, like, um, yeah. Again, I did this math, I did it really quick, and my logic went around. I'm pretty sure that's the equivalent of going from a three mer, or I, not a mer, a three blended rise. I was invert mer because I'm, I don't, the percentage means nothing to me. Um, yeah. A three to a 2.3. So, you know, that's losing a 0.7, right? Like you just lost 0.7 of ROAS in six months. Like, can't remember. I actually do feel like we've come out the other side. And I think just to navigate, like, I do how we did it, just go kind of through that. Um, 
the biggest things for us were because we were already dealing with attribution issues like because I mean attribution for us still was far from perfect before before iOS 14. Um, we already talked about it, like those gut calls of like sometimes we're not going to have the data so how do we optimize without data yeah. well we're already trying to optimize off of some of these totally not in platform metrics mm -hmm. um and over time we just figured out how to tie those back in better you know like now we track really religiously like our facebook cpa compared to our actual blended cpa compared to our google cpa compared to our new customer cpa you know, and we can make data-driven decisions still, but we're not relying on any kind of attribution. But like we talked about knowing like how machine learning works, like, right, obviously I have to, like, I'm not gonna scale up an ad set that's not getting purchases in Facebook because it's getting no data. So like, it's not gonna get more, it's not ever gonna work better, but I know I can take my ones that do have 10 purchases last week or whatever and scale those ones 20% and see how the CPA's Facebook seeing compared to everything else and yeah. see how that affects you know, and so we just got really good at like looking at things full funnel. Um, that's not to say we're like, great. I'm sure there's thousands of marketers who are actually probably better than I am um, at that. But just like knowing, being super early to that decision, because we were already prepared, like we were prepared before iOS 14, we knew what was going to happen. We knew what to expect. And we were, you know, we were praying for the best that no one was going to miss a step. But like, we even had strategies built out. Like, let's say everything was a hell in a handbasket and everything's just gone. Okay, well, how can we optimize? How can we turn into like a golden hippo? Which this isn't what golden hippo does exactly, right? But like to optimize around getting emails to sell, you know, like where the email KPI is our most important KPI. You know, how can we, how can we figure out 50 different ways to restructure everything on a strategic level? Um, and I just said, because I use Golden Hippo because like they're a good example, but actually I do know for a fact Golden Hippo optimizes for purchases and is doing email remarketing to the people who buy the first time. So they were a really bad example, but yeah. their competitors do it the other way. So right. Agora, Agora. Yeah, like in Agora where you're trying to get, the, right. that's a good example. I just couldn't think of it off the top of my head and Golden right. Hippo was in that kind of mindset. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys. Yeah. So no, I think uh, that, so that is amazing. So first of all, uh, yeah, so so solving attribution, I do think, has helped us come out the other side. Uh, the solve for a while for us also was correlative, right? Uh, yeah. You know, so we're, we're correlating across and we're watching incrementality, a word nobody knew like a year and a half ago. Yeah, see, uh, and, and we were, everybody knows. Uh, yeah, see, and like that's where, like, because our attribute, we knew our attribution windows were so long, we were already using like incrementality right. before that. So it's just like, so like, yeah, it hurt us in the sense of like, yeah. But like, we didn't really retool our org because we were already like doing what turned out to be the solution. And it just turned out we had to do it better and better. And so we've like, we've gotten new tools and we've learned more as marketers and as data scientists, quote unquote, like we're not real data scientists, but whatever, you know, we've just learned how to do it better. And that's why I feel like we're kind of on the other side. Um, for us, it doesn't feel like it. We're having like a rough 2022. I mean, it's still great. Like, I'm not going to complain because I know so many people go through it so much worse, but like, with like kind of this like wishy-washy economy, people don't like to buy really expensive things quite as often, you know, like, so yeah, we're, sure. we're much more flat than growth at this point, you know, we're, but we're up in efficiency while being flat. So it's like, well, it's not the end of the world, but we're not, we're, we're struggling to find the new increments, incremental lifts levers, but 
we're going to keep doing the same things we do and look at everything holistically and test new creatives. And, and again, that's the biggest one for us is probably creative testing. And again, I do say we do have it easy because we see a lot of success with like statics and gifts. So yeah. the fact that I can make a grid of four different rings and sometimes have that be like a banger new performer means I can test creative way easier than brands who are like every time, you know, if I'm like a Zillow or not that that's quite e-commerce, but you know, something more complex like that, where it has to be like a brand intro ad, even if you're doing it really efficiently, like that's still a couple grand for every one of those videos or for the assets that you're using in those videos, even though you might only film once and then you're repurposing and cutting based off like element, like by, by having video elements in your ads that you can repurpose and reuse, like, you know, we still do have it easier there, but yeah, no, I, I think it's like, you know, I feel we're, we're out the other side too. And, and for us, I think, you know, it's, I haven't said this before. I think that he has been a couple things, right? So getting better at uh, data modeling in some way or another, right? So uh, whether you're using a third-party MTA, I know you, we talked off cameras, yeah. they're not, they're not great for you because your sales cycle is so long. I mean, yeah. us like triple pixel, triple whales and a sponsor of the show. So, you know, low key <laughs> subtle plug for them, but, but, you know, a triple pixel and whatever North beam, um, rocker box, those are some of them, but like using stuff like that has helped for, for plenty of our brands or, uh, getting good at tracking incrementality and tracking lift. Um, another thing is we've gotten a lot better at media mixing. Right. So, so getting the right, like it just, it, Facebook used to make it so easy. Right. So you could just kind of scale there, put a lot of your focus there, throw up some branded search and some shopping and you know, you're off to the races. We've gotten a lot better at media mixing across YouTube, non-brand search, shop conquesting, like, you know, a lot of that stuff, um, and, and TikTok, Right. And, uh, like finding a way to compare apples to apples of like, Hey, when we do want to scale up and we do want to find that incrementality lever, like, is it, is it like, Hey, we turn this knob on, on our like non-brand search. We turn this knob on our, our Facebook demand gen and we turn this knob on, on YouTube. Like sometimes it's across a couple channels or we turn this knob on TikTok. Yeah. And that, that's like, it's, it's a kind of combination of media mixing that. So that's it. We, it, this forced us to get better at that, you know? And I, I, in, in the end, I think we're better marketers because of it. And then the last thing I'll say, and this is, you know, to not on us at all. Like I'll give credit back to Facebook here. Uh, I think it's actually gotten better. We're, we're seeing yeah. better matching. We're seeing better matching now. Yeah. Three things, um, on that vein. A, I agree with the Facebook side. We're seeing data get better and better on the Facebook side and things work better. Um, yeah. second, one thing that I always forget to bring up that I do just like to bring up that, cause like, I think it, it's going to, it might matter to us some, some brands. We actually felt like our shopping got hit harder huh. than our Facebook. Um, which was, that's probably where we took the biggest hit was our shopping efficiency. Um, which I haven't heard very many other brands, but there's always one or two who go, oh, I thought I was the only one. Like, you're not. Which third brings me back. Um, which, so that's just one thing. Like, that's where our probably biggest lever to improve going forward is. Um, I think it was Sean on one of your episodes. I went through and watched a few episodes this morning. Talked about it. Like, they are really good at demand capture, but not generation. Yeah. One thing that separates us from a lot of the other large, like your Manly Band or something, we're really good at demand generation. We're actually not the best at demand capture. We're like Manly Bands, way better at demand capture and pulling in those people looking for a cool wedding band and things like that. We don't really have that section of our funnel built out and working well at scale. So we definitely need to work on that. Um, but coming back to the media mix, I want to hit that. One thing that helps us that like this is a kind of a cop-out answer. Um, 
we make all of our budget decisions holistically. So like if we want to scale for our incrementality, we'll we'll say like, let's turn budgets up 20%, but then we meet and we have our media buyers decide how to allocate that. So they have to like defend their positions, right? Um, I'm not even in most of those meetings, to be honest. They're usually doing it just between each other, though. Um, I'd be like, hey, I'm seeing really good success in X campaign. We just got, you know, $5,000 a budget a week, which comes out to $700 a day. I want to use 300 of it there. But then they got the, the dude doing the Facebook media buying is going, oh, you know what? Like, I'm having this campaign. My DABA campaign is going crazy. You know, like, and we sort it out that way. But having it that discussion that discussion that way has actually which again, like we weren't doing it for a strategic reason other than it was easier, but it really helped us because they're, they're, they're not siloed. They're not in a vacuum. They have to sit down and say, well, okay, if you tell me that this is doing that, I kind of want to give you some of the more of the budget. Cause if it, if our CPAs look way better though, I'm going to be able to turn remarketing up 20%, like our remarketing budget up 20% in a week, because we're going to say, Hey, look, our acquisition level layers killing it. And we haven't scaled our remarketing layer in a month or whatever. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And it, I think it's as long as alignment, right? Like, yeah. um, it, it, as long as all media buyers are aligned toward the same goal. Which, that's why it's a cop-out. That's why it's a cop-out. Because like, obviously, if you're using two different agencies, you're probably not going to be able to get your two different agencies to meet together. Which yeah, they pot committed to a channel, right? Like, they, yeah. they, want, they want to defend their channel. Yeah, which is like, that's what's where, I mean, and it works because we work with... Um, agency like smaller agencies or like independent contractors freelancers like we're not like on the like big agency grind anymore we learned it because we used to be have everything under one agency and so they were you know the account manager was making them do that anyway because they're you know mm -hmm. this is how we're gonna allocate budget but when we went away from that and went to all these different things we just part of our big thing was we don't do a retain like we don't do a performance retainer at all with anyone because we need them to be able to have that discussion for us to see success Right. Um, and so we just talked to them and say, well, okay, what if we just pay you literally a hundred percent more than your minimum? Like you, you're telling us it's going to be, you know, 4k a month. What if we just, we'll sign 8k a month for six months, you know, here's, yeah. here's a $50,000 check, like, right. you know, and so we do kind of negotiate around that note so we can get that discussion. Cause we don't want them to feel they have to spend more to be considered good at their job or yeah. valuable or to affect their compensation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's great. And it, it, it all is, I mean, look, you're talking about what I do. All the time. How do you manage knowledge workers? How do you yeah. uh, al properly align, uh, you know, a brand and you know, independent contractors or freelancers, agencies, whatever? Like that's uh, that. I would go deep down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, but yeah, no, this is amazing. So I, you know, we we are at like you know, kind of around an hour. We that's where we try and keep it. I feel like I could talk to you all day about your growth, marketing tactics. Like you know, it's been a good. It's just been a general good time. Like, yeah, uh, thanks. I, I, not I every episode is like that. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, I think this has been, it's like been an incredible story of how you've grown this brand. I, I want to give you a second. We end each episode with like what we call a parting shot, right? Um, and, uh, and, and I usually, and you kind of actually answered this already. Like, you know, sometimes I'm asking, like, hey, what do you feel like you're doing really well right now or working really is working really well? What do you feel like isn't working? super well for you. You kind of answered that. Um, so, you know, if you want to weave that into the parting shot, that's fine. But all in, it's like this parting shot, it's kind of like the TLDR version. A lot of times you put it right at the top of the episode to say like, hey, look, you know, this is this is what you're here to here to listen to and learn today. Um, yeah, I mean, through the course of this discussion, 
as thoughts have crossed your mind, things you've learned, things you've realized, oh, I didn't even think about it, but talking it out, I realized I learned this, you know, uh, what do you, what, I, I'm going to give it to you, sort of, what do you feel like the parting shot is? Yeah, no, so I feel like I've tailed that. We've kind of talked about this in our, like, pre-production meeting or whatever, but um, I think it comes down to, when we talked about it, we called it base hits. I don't think that's quite right. I think it's much more equivalent to a run-first football strategy of, we're going for consistent yardage every play with the goal of breaking some off, you know, like we're looking for how can we, how can we grow 10, 20% a year efficiently, but using things that have really high floors while also having high ceilings. That's kind of what my part of trying like, that's what we learned and that's how we operated and it works well. So like, like you look back, you know, we had those 1.3 years where like it took us a, it took us like two or three years to go from like one point low single digit millions to 1.8 million. Like that was like years of work, but we're consistently growing every year, consistently growing profit, getting more efficient. And then this, what happened is, oh, we've set up all these groundwork or all this like groundwork. Here's a big jump because it's built on all these layers. I know you get a lot of, and like it's all strategy. Like I think getting rich quick, coolest thing in the world trust me, I would do it if I had a way to do it. Like, right. but for us, it's just all been about that, you know, those base hits, that consistent stuff of how can we drive incrementality yeah. day over day, month over month, year over year. And it really does compound, you know, like when that's kind of just that story of like, you can hear all the different things you went through. And like, we got, like, I'd say today, which in three years, I probably won't say this, but today, I'm really good. Like, I think I'm a really good operator. I think I'm a really good marketer. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of times where like people were probably thinking I was a much better operator and marketer than I was, but it was because we just had all that compounding. Like I learned this one thing and it's working and now we're learning another thing. We're doing it a little better and we we're getting good results, but it compounds. And like today I've, I've we're great, you know, and I, like I said, like I've we just we do well like i think yeah. a, the majority of brands would kill to be in our position and it wasn't some quick thing it wasn't something we did that was like crazy that's un, really unrepeatable it was consistent effort and improvement day over day month over month and yeah. looking back it feels like we're a world away but it's like oh shoot it's also been like five six years of just grinding yeah, I love that. It's like, you know, Casey likes to say, run to set up the pass, you know, like. Yeah, that would be how you succinctly say what I just said. I run to set up the pass thought about it all morning. It's, it's optimi optimization by a thousand pivots. I say that a lot, right? Yeah. yeah it, it's success by a thousand tiny pivots. Uh, not random, unconsidered pivots, but a thousand tiny considered considerate pivots. Uh, and like, you know, you look a thousand pivots later and you're like, holy crap, we've actually come a long way. Like you don't yeah. even realize it in the moment a lot of the time. So yeah, no, I love it. It's a, uh, it's a great parting shot. Great episode. It's been a, a really good time talking to you. Um, and I will let Casey take us out. Casey, say the YouTube things. Lewis, by the way, you get bonus points for squeezing in a sports analogy into the parting shot. That's excellent. We didn't get to that organically. I always feel like we let our viewers down whenever we don't get a sports metaphor in because that's really like that's on that's really on brand for us. That's so. so thank you for doing that. Thank you for being our guest. John, thank you for leading that interview. Always a pleasure to work with you. 
Uh, Modern Commerce, thank you for viewing this episode. If you've made it this far, please go ahead and like the video. Uh, also subscribe to the channel and hit the bell icon to get notifications about whenever we drop new videos onto the channel. And until next time, we will see you.